Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Cronus Gaming Classics, and more, now celebrating our 375th episode. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. As always, you guys can find the show online at X'sForPodcast.com and at X's for Podcast on Twitter, and I could not be more excited than to celebrate just about our fourth anniversary and our 375th episode at the same time. I was lucky enough to enjoy an incredible flame con and then I found myself up in Maine spending some time with TK and my amazing husband Kevo and as I'm putting together this episode I see the significant number 375 coming up and I realize that just about lines up with when we kick this show off back in September of 2018 that's September 1st and I'm just staggered by how much material we have covered in that time. And you know, it's so cool because it really has not just been what is currently running at Marvel. You know, and that's not really even where you started with the show, but when you move to transition to more current coverage, I love that you still managed to keep going with finding so much stuff in the vault that was worth covering. You know, Spellbound was such an amazing experience for all of us, and I think we just had so much fun digging into this tiny little mini-series that ended up meaning so much to us and just reminding us of all the ways that comics has these little pockets that are worth investigating. And then of course there's things like MC2 which became a whole project for you and me where we really just found every and we're still investigating every little corner of this universe and the influence that it had on comics and Marvel overall. Meanwhile we're still running strong covering all the current books coming out that we love so much and it just really is such an incredible accomplishment for our whole team that we managed to show up every week multiple times per week and talk so much about this stuff that we love. Well, when the show began, it definitely wasn't multiple times per week. When we kicked X's for podcast off, it was an examination between myself and Jonah of classic Uncanny X-Men stories following Giant Size number one. Kyle and myself took a look at the Champions, which featured a number of X-Men, while Kevin and I examined Captain Britain. From there, things around episode 19 took a turn into the 80s as the Dark Phoenix saga changed everything, and we ran that dramatically different 80s era until about episode 35, at which point the House of X and Powers of 10 era changed comics in a way that just couldn't be ignored and we had to start covering it. And from roughly episode 36 to episode 128, we covered classic 80s stories in conjunction with modern X stories. Now, sometimes you would get a really good sync moment where it's like, wow, I can't believe we were covering that. What perfect timing. But it also would occasionally lead to a lot of hard coverage and a lot of confusion. And around episode 130, we switched over to focus primarily on modern comics, especially with the resuming schedule post-pandemic. It seemed like a really good time to turn our attention to a more guest host-driven roundtable discussion. And we brought in a number of incredible contributors, many of whom have stayed with us this whole time as our show took on monikers from This Is X to This Is X of Swords to This Is Reign of 
effects, countdown to the Hellfire Gala, attending the Hellfire Gala before ultimately settling into Mutants, Magic, and Marvels, which has, in many ways, remained our banner for probably the longest. And we've had so many incredible co-hosts. And, you know, TK, it's almost impossible to believe that you are one of the newer voices, though far from the newest, and you've still been on a hundred plus episodes. Yeah, it's pretty mind-boggling for me to think about. And it's that sort of desire to evolve the show that had me thinking about just how much this show has covered and outlived. It's funny the ways in which we're always told that every revamp is going to be the revamp. This show started September 1st, 2018, and I wanted to make sure that I had the product up and running before New York Comic Con 2018. At Comic Con 2018, Marvel debuted the upcoming Uncanny book, which would ultimately launch in January of 2019. It would lead into X-Men Disassembled. And, you know, they were like, this is the thing. This is the change. This is the point you should come back to the X-Men. And, you know, that was the thing that got me to read X-Men again. I read Uncanny X-Men Disassembled 1 through 10 in, you know, late 2018, early 2019, and ultimately felt like maybe it was not the thing that was going to get me to switch this to modern coverage. And I think for me, that was the point at which I was flirting with maybe I needed to walk away for a significant amount of time because I think I had just been waiting ever since maybe I want to say schism for the kind of change that was as big as the decimation was. You know, I kind of accepted that we probably were not going to get a restarting of the mutants being, you know, a hundreds of thousands to low millions population that's still a huge minority, but is is quite large uh, when it comes to being a group of people that can form a culture. I had accepted that we probably weren't going to get back there, but I was hoping we would get something that was a, a pretty big change to the status quo and to the numbers and to the concept of mutants as a group of people. And it just seemed like even after Avengers versus X-Men, where Hope as the Phoenix restarts mutant births, we just weren't going to get there. And things felt a little directionless and aimless. And I think Disassembled was where I started to say to myself, you might want to make peace with walking away to a certain regard and not having the same slavish devotion to your love of all things mutants. And that slavish devotion to all things mutants got me to pick up the X-Force run that would run 10 issues from February 2019 to September 2019, which, funny enough, I kind of thought that X-Force run was a little cavalier with killing characters. If only I would know what was waiting for us with Uncanny Disassembled's Aftermath in the Rosen Canny era, which would run Uncanny 11 to 22. Now, around the same time, Uncanny 11 to 22 was running a really intense like slaughter fest featuring Cyclops on a weird redemption murder salvage mission. It's hard to even understand at this point in his timeline what was going on there. In the background of everything, Age of X-Men was running. Now this title ran an Alpha issue, an Omega issue, and five issues of each of the following miniseries. The Marvelous X-Men, Next Gen, The Amazing Nightcrawler, The Extremists, Prisoner X, and Apocalypse and the Extract. 
Facts. And this ran from February 2019 to July 2019. And I remember being really excited for it at first. And while I'm still very positive on a lot of the creators, this was not the moment for me. You know, it's so tough because, and this is something I talked about relatively recently on the podcast, none of us could have known at the time what was coming for the X-Men. And again, I relate it to my feeling like maybe I need to walk away. Age of X-Men on paper should really be the event for me, somebody who names himself after X-Men, who loves X-Men, who Age of X-Men is like right up my alley. But again, we were just in this, we're still in this weird limbo state of not really understanding what Marvel wanted to do with the mutants. And it felt very nebulous and directionless. And I think had I known, had I had some sense of certainty that guys, a big status quo change is coming. If you read this stuff, it will actually in some ways be really rewarding when we move into House of X and Powers of Ten and the Dawn of X. You know, this is kind of really a final send off to this era that we had that started with the decimation. I think if I had known that at the time, I could have read a lot of this stuff with a lot of interest and enthusiasm. Instead, I it, there was a lot of skepticism. I really felt like I just wasn't getting anything that was moving towards this thing that I really needed at a high conceptual level for the X-Men and for the X-Books. So really in the present, in the moment, I had almost a distaste for this, this crossover event, even though it featured a lot of creators I loved. And even though I think a lot of the stories were really good, now that I know everything that I know and we're fully into, we're past Dawn of X, we're past Reign of X, we're into the Destiny of X, I look back and I look at all those stories and I think they're really fantastic. And I think even, you know, the events of Rose and Canny, which in some ways felt really distasteful to me, and there are some that are still really problematic, but the general idea that this creator, knowing that he could play around because something was coming that would reverse all the effects of what he was doing, really played around and got messy in the sandbox. Sometimes that's really fun. And at the time, I was just grossed out by it because I had no idea that we would be able to resurrect mutants. But now I actually look back on it. A lot of it's really good. A lot of it's really fun. I love Age of X-Men now. It's unfortunate that there was no good way to signal to all of the X-Men readers, stick with us a little longer because something great is coming. But at the very least, you know, one of the things I love most about this medium and most about having it now in this time of digital comics and large archives is that we can look back and we can appreciate things that at the time maybe did not get the love they deserved. And this is certainly an era that I feel that way about. And in sort of a touchstone moment that represents a part two of our New Mutants conversation, there were other stories in that time, and I do think they add to what you're saying. The line as a whole seemed to be a little bit more aware of the value of the reset, of the nature of what this meant. Just because writers might have written stories under the understanding that things about their stories could be negated in the coming weeks or months doesn't mean that those stories still didn't have impact and still weren't meant to tell a tale. Matthew Rosenberg also wrote New Mutants Dead Souls, which really does connect to his uncanny run and is another pretty significant piece that came out in the time our show was coming out while the series did kick off in May 2018. It wrapped up in October of 2018, just after our show began. There were a number of other significant series in this time, like there was also the Shatterstar miniseries in this time, which I was a fan of ultimately 
definitely. And a title that we came to much later and was such a pleasure, not just to cover, but to get to talk to the creator as well. We had an amazing time talking about typhoid fever and Clay was such a blast to have on the show. You know, Clay McLeod Chapman did an incredible job with something he felt really unsure of and continues to churn out great work for Marvel. And I think the thing I was so impressed by when we read that series and talked to Clay was that he really, without having the same deep background that a lot of us had, had a fantastic understanding of these characters and how the X-Men would relate to a person who is a mutant but who is not part of the standard mutant books. And that just points to the fact that even when things are not the status quo that you might want, there's still always so much good writing and work to be done with the characters that there is always value in at least keeping an open mind and checking books out. There's always going to be some creator who is writing the hell out of a book or a character that you love. Even if you're not interested in the line as a whole, there is going to be something for everybody, I think, at almost any time when it comes to the X books. And that's what makes them so gratifying. It's especially cool when it's somebody who is not one of those creators that becomes synonymous with the X-Men, the way that people like Al Ewing and Cy Spurrier and Kieran Gillen have recently. All amazing creators, I'll read anything they write, but what a fantastic treat when somebody that you just don't really necessarily think of in the context of the X-Men shows up and just writes the hell out of Jean Grey talking to Typhoid Mary. And we were so sort of surprised by what a complex way that story was able to integrate the X-Men because that is the drama of putting the X-Men, especially at that point in canon in other crossovers, the X-Men felt very walled off. And I long made a joke on this show that we're only ever going to cover X-Men. And then it became, we're only ever going to cover mutant books. And then it became, we'll cover anything that is a mutant related adjacent book, but also, you know, has some fundamental value, like a crossover. And then my hard line was just no Spider-Man. Best laid plans, you know? So the X-Men, by reintegrating into the Marvel Universe through small moments like Typhoid Fever, were able to reintegrate into the Marvel Universe in a big way because that's what it was going to take to shake the X-Men out of the nature of what isn't even exactly uncanny. Any single uncanny run is not responsible for the hole that the X-Men sort of wound up in. And that's kind of the nature of corporate comics in a lot of ways. You're always beholden into a status quo until someone's ready to try something bold and new. And I think we point to New X-Men a lot, but New X-Men was about change and revolution, where Astonishing is about looking at a moment in time and doing that moment in time really well. But I don't know that I would describe anything about Astonishing X-Men as brave or defining or cutting edge. It's a really great widescreen look at the reality of the world, Grant Morrison left as a tribute to the works of the many creators from the 60s, 70s, and 80s that came before. But then that becomes the standard. The standard becomes, keep this all in this position. Do not move us forward. And it's so significant that it's do not move us forward, that there's this moment in Astonishing 13 where Wolverine says something like, I know all we've been through to Hisako. And when it comes out, you could believe that it's 
that's House of M. But Astonishing takes so long to come out that I think they just repurpose it to be Secret Invasion or, you know, whatever crossover the X-Men were going through, maybe a Messiah thing. I don't know. And that holding pattern from roughly 2005 is the thing that it took until 2019 to shake us from. And it really was a reset from House of M that I think we all had so much trouble with because Morrison brought the concept of the mutant metaphor to a place where, you know, we had all been doing the work, I think, as young people, because a lot of people reading started in the baby boomer generation going all the way up through millennials. We had all been doing the work, making the metaphor relevant to us personally for years. And that was fine. That was, we all in fandom just got used to doing that. And Morrison kind of codified and made some slight changes that made it all the more possible for us to point to the metaphor and say, see, this is really how it relates to me. And I don't say that just as a queer person. I know that that's true for people of color too, for disabled people. There are a lot of marginalized minority groups that use the mutant metaphor and really appreciated what Morrison did to make that something that we didn't have to stretch so hard to make relevant to ourselves. And when we had the decimation, we really lost a lot of the ability to play around so easily and point to that metaphor. I think we forget or maybe don't appreciate how much the survival aspect of the metaphor became very important in that era and is very relevant. But it just went on for so long and had to do with so many things that are not just story importance, but who had rights to use these characters in what form. It just was a really difficult time as a fan to use these stories in the way that we had been for so many years. And as I mentioned with the stuff that comes out immediately before Hawkboss, there's still a lot of really great stuff there. Some beautiful stories being told, some excellent writing, but it was just a little tough and there was no end in sight. There was no change that we could expect. House of X and Powers of Ten really is such a shift because it not only do we know that from a business standpoint, things had really changed with the mutants, but that change makes it so much more possible for people to take really big swings with these characters that they were not able to before. And right off the bat, those big swings really pay off and re-energize a fandom in a way that I don't think even the Morrison run did. I think House of X and Powers of Ten, the way it reinvigorated this fandom is unlike anything that has been seen in comics before. And before we go a step forward, I just want to point out that there was a period shortly after the House of X and Powers of Ten relaunch where a previous writer came forward and said that everybody should just be aware that this person had been offered the job previously. Now, the timing of it actually makes it that they must have been offered Extraordinary X-Men, which would ultimately be by Jeff Lemire and Humberto Ramos, who are two phenomenal creators. And the since-deleted tweet from the creator from March 24, from March 24th, 2020, says, just found my entire two-year X-Bible plans from when I was going to take over the X-Books, haven't opened it since I quit, was very Phantom X, Gene, and Professor X-Zorn centric. Big Bad was Mastermind. Just couldn't make myself do the mandated inhuman story. Say la vie. One of the things that I find so interesting about this person coming forward and being like, yeah, well, that could have been me, is clearly this couldn't have been. That pitch would have been like in the muck. You know, I think Jeff Lemire is an incredible writer and I just am such a huge fan of his work. But even I'm kind of like, yeah, Extraordinary X-Men, not an extraordinary time for the 
the X-Men. And I think we saw a lot of creators who showed a lot of promise and had there not been so many editorial mandates and really a need to be nimble with character rights could have done great work. I want to really point to people around the IVX time that just, I believe, I've seen them write really great stuff, but the way they touched the X-Men, those stories just were not up to the caliber of what I think really great X stories can be. And I don't think it's because the writers don't have the skill. I think it's just because these things are not written in a vacuum and you don't just show up with a pitch for a great story and somebody says, done, just write it. It always is in consideration of a larger ecosystem. And even now when we are in a time where you can be much more liberal with, well, I'm going to create new mutant characters and there's going to be dozens of mutants that you'll see in this title. That's all very plausible now from the standpoint of there's not just a couple hundred mutants, but there are limits to what you can do based on factors that we as fans have no concept of. And that's good. We shouldn't. We don't need to know how the sausage is made. We don't need to know everything. But we do have to be aware of the fact that when we get stories that we don't absolutely love, it is not always on us to say that person's not a good writer or that person shouldn't be writing the X-Men. But more, there are so many factors that contribute to great X-Men stories. When we when they don't hit in the way that we wish they would, sometimes it's just a matter of saying, uh, that one didn't quite do it for me. Shrug on to the next thing. And I always pay attention to those creators that write stories that don't necessarily jive with what I think is great for the characters that I love, because I'm really curious to see what promise was shown in their work such that they got on the book in the first place. And I think almost universally, they write great stuff somewhere else. It's just a matter of sometimes the timing is not there for a writer's talent to jive with what needs to happen in the books from both an editorial and a storytelling standpoint. You know, when you think about four years and you think about 375 episodes of a periodical style discussion, right? Because that's kind of what we are. I know it's a lot of segments each week, but part of what I'm always striving to create is a playlist of discussion where if you read it, you can listen. If you want to know more about it, you can listen. But if there's a segment that you know isn't for you, like it's not the kind of thing where there's such a heavy continuity that the every title of the X-Men, if you're not reading it, should make the program exclusionary. And that's why for the most part, we try to keep each discussion focused to, you know, a single book at a time. So anybody reading along is able to connect with the material. And because I think about the show in terms of such one title at a time, we're starting a new thing uh, versus X, where we're taking a look at two X books at once and seeing where they fit together to help enhance the line, or perhaps they could use a little more support in each title or both titles. But we're still trying to take a look at it so individually that the holistic realization of just how many X books, not that are just still running, but have come and gone since this program began is staggering to me. And it's so funny because we were kind of going over the list together earlier and the number of titles that just kind of slip your mind. And as soon as you just see the words in front of your face, an entire experience of readership comes flooding back to you. It's actually pretty 
pretty great. It's really amazing what they have managed to pull off and provide to, you know, I think what was at once a starving fandom that just kind of wanted this amount of content. And again, I'm always the person that says that none of it's bad. Some of it just doesn't click. And there has been that stuff. But especially in hindsight, when you think about how it all comes together, it really is a joy to be able to have all this stuff. The X-Men were really walled off for a while. And it's funny how in this era, they have become a separatist nation that is islanded off. But the great thing about an island, and especially this island, is you can always leave and you can always walk right back into the country of your choice. And you could always sail away and show up in the world. And it's a very interesting conceptual metaphor for what's happening where the X-Men are really concentrated in the world that they're in, but it feels more possible than ever that they would simply walk out of the world that they're in and interact with the greater Marvel Universe. We're seeing that happen in Axe Judgment Day right now, but we're really getting the best of both worlds. We're getting to have that concentrated family time of the X-Men together, but at any point, it is completely plausible that they will just explode onto the world and have so much to interact with, and that's really exciting, and I think a lot of the books that have come before really reflect that. And one of the things that I found so exciting about this opportunity to engage with a new era of X-Men is how early on they were so committed to the tightness of scheduling. I am certainly not here to point fingers at anybody about handling shipment of comics during the pandemic or the paper shortage or the shipping problems that we are having with like physically getting things places. There are elements to the conversation that certainly do have people who can be looked to. You know, there is something to be said about the diamond distribution situation that the world found itself in where ultimately diamond had such a powerful market share because in the 90s Marvel tried to go to a different shipping distributor and as a result of going to this different distributor DC and all of the other major imprints lined up behind Diamond in a way that gave Diamond such a significant market share with such long-term contracts that there really was no secondary questioning for it so when part of the problem became Diamond became perhaps less consistent I do think that there are corporate factors here that do need to be looked at for how they affected the schedule but that opening salvo those 12 issues of house and powers being free of that drama and then i remember specifically the first few weeks in a row when x-men marauders excalibur new mutants x-men uh, x-force x-force fallen angels because it spelled x-men and then it started to spell x-force yeah i mean i think we all forget the world before the pandemic and now we've grown accustomed to just kind of forgiving these factors as well we should because so much is out of the control of anybody you know even if you are very anti-corporate you have to admit that this is all just an insane time and everybody's doing the best they can but in the summer of 2019 when we still were really not thinking about this it was pretty incredible how one after another these books were coming out the dominoes were falling we were getting the pieces in place to set up an entire world that we are living in three years later with so much interest in joy and I really have to hand it to every single writer, artist, letterer, editor, creative person that was involved in this process because even if every book was not for you, even if every book didn't necessarily have the quality of art or writing that you personally might have wanted for it, you cannot deny that it was an immersive experience and it really was due to how perfectly introduced and scheduled all of these stories were and the bold statement that it made that we are in a new era 
And after kind of starving for crumbs for a little while, we're all going to eat. We're all going to really feast for the next. I mean, I think we I, I think we're still feasting now. And I think the only thing that has changed is the eccentricities of post COVID shipping. But man, are we still getting a lot of incredible content and so much content is already gone, which, you know, we're still seeing some of these titles like legitimately. I believe the only two books from that initial launch that are still going are New Mutants and X-Force. X-Force has had the same writer behind it with a pretty consistent visual look, but New Mutants, I mean, fucking might as well have relaunched from scratch. And those are the only two books from this initial lineup that are still running in that incarnation. And in fact, most of the others have reformatted their reformatting since. Yeah, it's so funny that like a book like X-Men that was this weird kind of anthology title that I I would almost call like X Nation went for 21 issues and we were never really sure of the direction that it was going, but it gave us so many little glimpses into various slices of life. And then it just cut right into being what we normally expect X-Men to be, which is a flagship team book. And somehow I forget we have just seen issue 13 of the second volume since Krakoa happened of the X-Men book, because in some ways I feel like having even just the presence of an X-Men title the entire time, there has been a continuity just to saying, you know, the X-Men are here in a new era. You know, I think the other thing that really changed how we all thought about this line was the introduction of X of Swords as the first big crossover event and how that really made us think about what the long-term implications of this relaunch really were. And that relaunch has seen so much change since everything kicked off. Of those original round of titles, we saw House of X and Powers of Ten each run six issues from July to October of 2019. X-Men ran 21 issues from October 2019 to June 2021. Marauders ran 27 issues plus the King in Black special and then relaunched. Excalibur ran 26 issues and then relaunched as Knights of X. Now, they ended a month apart with Excalibur ending in February of 2022 and Marauders ending in March 2022. It feels very much like by that point, they were less concerned with a very consistent look to the titles. And I wonder if some of that has to do with the quick reception of Fallen Angels being definitive and decisive that six issues was enough ending in January of 2020. It's something that I remain really curious about and I try really hard to withhold judgment because I also know that it's a changing industry and I don't want to be the old man yelling at Cloud because I am so set in my ways of kind of wanting these enormous Claremontian runs of dozens of issues per creator. But I do find some value in these sewn up five, six issue series that, you know, we're just getting the arc that we're getting and then we're going to move on to the next thing. And I think it starts with Fallen Angels, which I believe when it began, we all just thought Fallen Angels won through question mark. And then about partway through, it became clear that this was going to be a limited series. I think it told a really excellent single arc story that I very much enjoyed. And it's interesting that it runs parallel to all these much longer running series 
series, but as the longer running series continue, we see more and more introductions of shorter mini series that are connected through either an author or a plot line. And when the longer running series start to come to a close after a couple of years, they relaunch as something that is a little more singular. We saw that happen with Excalibur into Knights of X, which is going to run for five issues, but we already know is getting some sort of follow-up that involves Betsy Braddock as Captain Britain. Would I love for these five issues of Knights of X to be five more issues of Excalibur? Sure. But at the same time, I, as a reader, am pretty aware of what's going on here. I followed all of Excalibur. I'm pretty comfortable jumping over to Knights of X. It's not the big stretch that I think sometimes we go, well, why can't somebody just have this long of a run? We're just doing things a little differently here, and I'm not going to speak to the financial success of doing it that way because that's not really my job or my concern. I can only speak to what I get out of the stories themselves. And I really enjoyed Excalibur and I really enjoyed Knights of X too. So I'm along for that ride. I really like that perspective on it. You know, the value of a closed out series. I'm always talking about, oh, Omni this, Omni that. And if you don't make it a reasonable number of Omniable issues, like I'm not here for your spine breaking Sandman omnibus editions. I'm here for your absolutes. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I need the number ratio to be a little bit more reasonable. It's one of the, you know, I often point to the Dark Tower omnibus being just a little too far at like 1200 pages. It really pushes the the spine control. But I think that something like the Ecstatics omnibus at about 1100 pages does a little bit better. And speaking of Ecstatics, you know, there were a couple of one shots that were really definitive early on in a very transformational way. The same month that we got House of X, we also got Giant Size Ecstatics, July 2019. And of course, that literally says on the last page leading into the excellent the excellent one through five wouldn't come out until february 2022 through july 2022 now that's uh, there's a really long time to wait but that also wasn't the only one shot we received during this time as we got a giant size x-men line centered around the children of the vault sort of almost a little bit everything except the magneto and i guess the nightcrawler issue so i guess it was just kind of two issues anyway and those ran from february 2020 to September 2020. They were by John Hickman and a bevy of incredible artists. And I feel like Giant Size Ecstatics starting off with sort of a corruptive influence of no, it's not all exactly a perfect schedule. And then perhaps the quick failure of the Giant Size line to be what it was, was maybe the sign that this Hickman situation isn't already flawless. Which I think is a very important reminder for all of us. You cannot expect this stuff to be flawless. There is a great story that is told through most of the issues of the giant size set of books and the Magneto and Nightcrawler stories are fantastic as well. It's just not necessarily clear what they're doing in the mix with the other ones but you could just as easily have made these part of the X-Men anthology but there especially with that initial giant size Jean Grey and Emma there's a statement being made about what's going on here. For years Jane and Emma were not on the same page together because Jean was dead and there's this constant back and forth about who's the right person for Scott Summers, who's a bad character, who's a good character and the launch of Giant Size, Jean Grey and Emma Frost was really a way of saying, screw all that, these two characters can be on page together and be allies and friends and that's more interesting than all of us in fandom fighting over who corrupted Scott Summers in a worse way, which weirdly is still a fight that we're having. Even when the publishing 
is not flawless, the stories still are so fantastic. And I think it's important to always keep that in mind because when we're deep in the weeds, we get frustrated by things like, oh, well, Giant Size Ecstatics just came out and it's been, or Giant Size Ecstatics came out and it's been a year and we still haven't seen the excellent, what the hell is going on? But then, you know, the excellent comes out when it comes out and it's a really fantastic story. So at the end of the day, if we can focus on what we take out of what we're actually reading, we're always going to be happier. And I know it's tough. And I think there is reason for us all to kind of sit and have those conversations about our frustrations when it comes to schedules and mandates. But we also have to just enjoy the stories that we get to read. And I think fandom is all about negotiating how we have those conversations, who we have them with, and what we decide to focus on as important when we have discussions together as a community. And I think part of that discussion does often lose sight of the fact that there are real people involved in this. Just to put some timing together, one of the big things that we've heard is that Jonathan Hickman realized it was his time to leave the X-Men while they were working on Ten of Swords, that just at that point, everybody wanted to run with elements of the story that he was looking to part with, so perhaps it was better for the sake of the line and Marvel Comics as a whole to move on to his next project. And, you know, it looks like it might even be Miracle Man. It's, you know, some big cosmic thing. I'm really excited. You know, we've been covering Miracle Man since, I want to say, like, episode 32 of this show. So, like, Miracle Man has long been something I have brought up ad nauseum. And so if the way comics work with the advanced time on production and breaking stories, I know that I'm not saying that, you know, stories are drawn this far in advance, but, like, crossovers are planned four and five years in advance. And issue stories get broken a year or two in advance. And, you know, that probably means that John Hickman was aware that he was leaving as X-Men number one was coming out, if not perhaps before that, if not perhaps during House and Powers. And he still, you know, put on a big smile and promoted the fuck out of this project, you know, because that's still his name on this book. And it must have been a very different project when Giant Size was originally conceived and pitched and designed. And it was probably a part of a much different view of the Hoxpox landscape. You know, I am really excited for everything the Krakoan era has given us, but huge chunks of me are envious of a world that saw the fruition of a Children of the Vault story and a full payoff of whatever the John Hickman Okara vision was, because, you know, I'm not saying it's his story for a thousand oceans in comic book tattoo, but it is about lovers split and magical islands. That's all I'm saying. Now, one of the more complex things that we wound up in was sort of that second wave of titles was a little unwieldy. We got Cable 1 through 12 and Hellions 1 through 18, as well as X-Factor 1 through 10 in May, May, and September of 2020. Of course, X-Factor is one of the most beloved titles on this show and in recent comics, definitely canceled too soon. The best things about Fallen Angels found themselves in Hellions with a whole lot more, and Cable also ran 12 issues. The thing I need to point out is I did not like Hellions from number one. I really did not enjoy pre-pandemic Hellions, but the I don't know if the book reset or what, but something happened between issues like, you know, like one and four of Hellions that what we got was such a better book than what we originally perhaps touted with. I am just so excited. Hellions ultimately paid off in some cool ways. X-Factor ultimately paid off in some cool ways. I am a little resentful that Cable kind of went nowhere. <laughs> 
Cable's a tough one. It was always a tough sell that we were going to keep Kid Cable. I love that story. I love the story of Kid Cable's time on Krakoa. I wish the legacy that it left for the character and the return of adult Cable was a little bit stronger. This speaks to the idea that not all of this is perfect, but there's always a lot to appreciate. I, having come out of the 12 issues of Cable, wish there were a stronger tie between what was in that book and what is happening now with the Summers Gray family. Setting that aside, if I can forget that I didn't quite get what I wanted going forward from it, really, the art is just absolutely fantastic, and it's a great story. It's just a great story about a character that kind of got proven irrelevant by a sort of reset that is always the danger of Cable as a character, and that is just one example of how it can be very complicated to tell stories in this time period, because you have no idea after you write something who is going to come after you and what they're going to find to be important. And also, as was mentioned before, these things aren't happening on the scale and timeline for the creative team as they are for us as readers. A lot of planning happens in advance whereby a writer doesn't have the foreknowledge and ability to take threads the way it seems like they ought to based on how we read them. So yeah, Cable, a little bit of a disappointment insofar as it just didn't go from the fantastic story that I really enjoyed to any place that I wish that it had, but I can still look at those 12 issues as something that I really enjoyed reading. Similarly, X Factor, I don't feel got the platform that it really deserved, but I loved the work that it did with the characters. I think it was really important for the evolution of Rachel Summers as a character, and I think it showed us things like how characters like iBoy and Prodigy could have new life on Krakoa. And even if they all aren't getting that new life in current books, I think one of the most fun and interesting things about this era is that people can do additive work in the sandbox and then put the toys away for somebody to pick up at any time. It's the surprise of what cool creator that you would never think is going to take a character that you would not normally associate them with and do that that work. I don't think I would have ever thought that Juggernaut was going to be in Legion of X, but man, am I really enjoying him. And it has been great coming off of some of the, you know, Infinity comics that have starred Juggernaut that have come out prior to this. And I think the idea of taking something old and finding some amazing new things with it are the theme of a number of the other titles that we saw during this era. We saw Juggernaut, we saw Sword, which launched out of the pages of kind of swords, and we saw X-Men Legends. Now, those first two focused on some ideas that are kind of just always hanging out right there, Sword being a representation of the X-Men in space, though specifically Abigail Brand, that green-haired nightmare, and Juggernaut was just fucking hot. Also, D-Cell is incredible. Admittedly, as much as I loved the Juggernaut story, and I really enjoyed getting to talk to Fabian Nicieza about our coverage. That was really a fun time, right? A really great exchange, and I really feel like it was incredible to get that sort of behind-the-scenes explanation of the story. X-Men Legends did not always hit for me at the same pitch. I believe, ultimately, we are not continuing our coverage, though, damn it, there's going to be an Andesenti longshot story. How am I not going to cover that? But, you know, it's interesting how some returns to the past worked, some didn't. I think X-Core, ultimately, is a title that the X-Men have yet to find a way to make the term X-Core work. And yet, the 
idea of X-Core is one that feels really central to building out mutant culture because it's such a like there are so many stupidly rich mutants that you can't account for in any way how they have the money that they have and they're always referencing like Frost Industries, Worthington Industries, Monet's Got Family Money. They're all wealthy and educated and I think it is funny and important to engage with that and I can fully believe that it is just not the kind of title that's for everyone maybe it's never going to have the success that I wish that it would have but I love that somebody took a shot and I think it is a great story I understand why it might not have been able to continue but I love that a creative said I gotta talk about this a little bit because we constantly talk about and you know Hoxpox sets up the idea that that mutant industry as a whole is a big idea, let alone when you get into the individual characters that control it. We got to play around with it a little bit, even if it's not going to be forever. We can't let it go untouched. And I think that is such a valiant effort to refuse to just let it be something that constantly gets a quick mention to explain something in a story that has nothing to do with mutant industry, to really dig in and get into how complicated it is and how ragged you can run Jamie Madrox at any particular time. Now, X-Corps wasn't the only title to receive a sort of lukewarm reaction. The five issues of X-Corps first started dropping in July of 2021. The incredibly delayed and then critically poorly received Children of the Atom ran from March 2021 to July of 2021. Way of X, which was a team favorite, but not necessarily the biggest hit with all of fandom, which culminated in Onslaught Reborn, ran from July of 2021 to roughly September of 2021. And then there was the event that was never an event that was always an event that just was never an event. Trial of Magneto 1 through 5, August to December 2021. Man, this was a title where no one really knew what was happening. It was under-marketed. It was over-marketed. It was running against too many other things. Of course, we're going to talk about that one in a second, but this was just sort of that pinnacle of of the X-Men are now a dozen something, a dozen something miniseries. And how do you manage all of them when they all need to have the greatest stakes? And Trial of Magneto is such a tough one for me because I am such an apologist for it. And I don't really feel like I have to apologize for it. I do feel like I can understand the criticism insofar as it really was made into an event. And it, I think we all kind of know that it wasn't really so much an event as it was the final five issues of X-Factor that did not get to be the final five issues of X-Factor but it meant so much to me as a reader because there are some moments that confront Magneto as a member of a family and as a patriarch and as somebody who loves very deeply but not very well that I think Leah Williams identified a human characteristic that I just I have so rarely seen written about so beautifully in comics and I one of the like defining moments in my life as a fan and as somebody who reads comics is getting to tell her how much that story meant to me because I just I feel like it is very rare to come to the conclusions about a character and get to write those conclusions on page in the way that she did and regardless of the success of this title what it ought to have been how it was received those are the kinds of moments that this era has produced that you can never forget about or take away from the value of any 
particular book, story, creator. Not all of it is perfect. Not all of it is released perfectly. Sometimes there are shipping delays. Sometimes it really ought to be part of a larger series. Sometimes it shouldn't be an event. There's all kinds of things that are not perfect. But within every imperfect story, there is at least one moment that just takes my breath away. And usually there's a lot more than that. So whatever is imperfect, I can forgive in service of what the story ends up meaning. I think the same is going to be true for a lot of people when it comes to something like Children of the Atom, which really speaks to what it's like to be a young person looking at cultural complexities and how marginalized cultures interact with a larger world. I, being an older person, didn't necessarily relate to it in the same way, but I could see what Vita Ayala was trying to write, and I think they really got a lot of important points across. Was it what I thought it was going to be when I first saw the solicits? No, but I think it's still a really fantastic six issues. And speaking of fantastic miniseries, before we get to the last two crossovers that can't be avoided, Sabretooth was another title that I feel much like Children of the Atom was, by the point it finally came out, they had said it was coming out for so long, it felt a little bit like a threat, and it finally was released, and it really did change a lot, not just for readers, but for the state of Krakoa, and I think that is something that, you know, this era kicked off in July of 2019, and in February of 2022, when the first of five Sabretooth issues dropped, there were still surprises stemming out of House of X number one. Because it was running concurrent to the end of Inferno, which really was the payoff for some of the biggest ideas that were set down in House of X. And, you know, Sabretooth in its own way was really a payoff of one central idea, which was how the mutants deal with justice. And we saw that that was going to come to a sense of exploration in the pages of Way of X. But we had this, what I have often referred to as original sin of Krakoa, which is the throwing in the pit of Sabretooth and just kind of forgetting about him. And I think that the Sabretooth miniseries, which is now first the Sabretooth miniseries of five issues and rolling into Sabretooth and the Exiles, which seems to be another probably five issue miniseries, has done such a fantastic job of exploring the implications of that original sin. It's another one of those things that the complexities and the frustrations around getting there have been difficult, around understanding, okay, so is this going to be an ongoing? Is this nine issues? Is this 12 issues? Okay, now it's another miniseries. Not my favorite thing to keep trying to understand, but once I tune that out and go back to reading the story, I think Victor Laval did an incredible job of setting up the stakes of the Quiet Council's belief that you can simply bury your problems. I believe that this will come back in a lot of important ways. Similarly, I think that Hickman did a fantastic job of setting up the stakes of Moira's machinations in the creation of Krakoa, and Inferno did a pretty fantastic job of paying those off. That is going to be a thread that I think will always be a part of this era of X-Men books. We have seen it continue ever since, sometimes to effects that are maybe not what I would have chosen to do, but I really appreciate, if nothing else, that nobody has said, eh, we're all tied up with this. We don't need to think about it again. It is always a looming threat. And I think like Sabretooth, that kind of is how it has to be for there to be stakes and for these moments to really mean anything. And it's back-to-back crossovers in the form of Inferno 1-4 to from September 2021 to January 2022 and Devil's Reign X-Men 1-3 to in January 2022 to March 2022 that really are about the past coming back for these characters that, I don't know, I feel as though the biggest problem with Inferno 
Inferno is just how many things it ran against. Just how much other Marvel Universe was happening around it. Devil's Reign was one of our favorite events of the year. And, you know, you and I covered more of it than I think anyone else on the network was a part of. It was a big current through Electra, which we wound up covering. And I was really sort of disappointed that it felt like Inferno just kind of slot between Trial of Magneto and Devil's Reign X-Men. Because Trial of Magneto ran from August to December and Devil Reign's X-Men ran from January to March. Inferno was in between them from September to January. It just feels like Inferno, the pinnacle of Hickman's run, never really had a chance in a way that was perhaps meant to favor everyone staying, but really ultimately left Inferno feeling lukewarm. I agree. I think that the idea of exploring the leadership of Krakoa and the mistakes that they make and their backgrounds with Trial of Magneto, obviously you're getting it with Magneto and Magneto and Charles's sins come back to haunt them in Inferno. One of those being how they've kind of, for lack of a better term, iced out Emma Frost and refused to allow her a seat at that exclusive leadership table where she really has been the third tier of people that have been concerned about mutant children and she deserved that seat at the table. So she becomes part of the Inferno event in refusing to allow them to do that anymore, which feels like a really natural transition into how Devil's Reign explores her past and explores how she has interacted with the wider Marvel Universe. It seems like anytime we get a deep dive into Emma, the point of it is always you have no idea how actually involved in people's lives and stories Emma Frost has been as bad as a character as you think she might be. There has always been a motivation that tough exterior that cruelness has always been more complicated than you think it is and I think that with a little bit more focus on narrativistic synergy we might have gotten something really strong from all three titles that allowed us to kind of make a statement about secret leadership when it comes to the actions of a nation or the movements of a culture and I do think that those statements are kind of there jumbled across a number of different stories. It just winds up being one of those things where you really have to do the work to get there, which as I keep saying is fine. We as readers do that a lot. It just, when you see the opportunity to make it happen pretty holistically that gets missed, it's unfortunate and you worry that some great storytelling opportunities were missed or that, you know, stories weren't done the justice for the readers that they really deserved, but the pieces are all there. It just winds up being our responsibility to do a little bit more work to put them in place. And speaking of no missed opportunity, I want to mention two crossovers in specific before we run through the list of crossovers that have occurred. Well, I guess it's three, really. I want to mention both Hellfire Galas and Ten of Swords. We actually haven't had like a proper Marvel-style crossover with the exception of Ten of Swords in this entire era. I don't think that I say that the X-Men really had a proper Marvel-style crossover in the last Hellfire Gala. That felt very, very kind of unique in that Marvel events usually tell a big thing from a big vantage point, and that was a big thing for sure, but it was from a very intentionally small perspective each issue with the exception of planet-sized X-Men so that you could see the way different parts of Krakoa interacted with one moment. And for that reason, I think the first Hellfire Gala was kind of successful, kind of wasn't successful for me in some other ways. The second Hellfire Gala, I was 
was very grateful was contained to a single issue, but did not hit me the same way. Ten of Swords was just ultimately too long for me. I like a lot of what's there, but ultimately too long for me. I think the first Hellfire Gala was really the best of the three. I think I would agree with you on that. I also think, you know, Ten of Swords is really cool. And uh, for me, yeah, I, I probably would have to agree that it was a little too long, but I don't think at the time I was being that critically minded about it because I was just so excited for the first crossover since this new era. The Hellfire Gala really was such a unique idea and was so so exciting. I think the focus on fashion and getting to give a bunch of artists the opportunity to make statements about their interpretations of characters based on what they thought they would wear to a fancy dress party is just the coolest thing ever. It was just so much fun and had so much coolness and style. And I think the way we all participated was really fun. It, it was a unique event and it really is one that as a fan, I will remember for as long as I continue reading comics. I also had some reaction to an event that I don't know was quite as successful. I felt perhaps a little bit lukewarm on X-Lives and Deaths all said and done. It wasn't even necessarily the event itself, but once again, X-Lives and X-Deaths for sort of interrupting the whole X-Line with the exception of annuals and significant one-shots, it did feel like that was was not the right follow-up to Inferno and that it ultimately had the follow-up to Inferno in it. There was so much about that that I feel the creative team between Josh Kassara, Ben Percy, Adam Kubert, they all really deserved more time for that story to be beautiful and really explore where it could go. It felt very much like lives and deaths just got shoehorned in to everything else happening. And once again, I feel like perhaps the container is what made that one a little tougher for me. I think that's exactly the right way to put it. The container is what made it tough. I The idea of this time-spanning Wolverine story on one side and then a much more immediate present Wolverine story on the other is actually really cool to me. And I say that as somebody who's not a huge fan of Wolverine, but I really respect what a fan of Wolverine Ben Percy is. And I think he writes the hell out of Wolverine. I love seeing a a creator just clearly have a love and respect for a character and thoughts on what their story should be and to write a great version of that character even if they're not always the beats that you know if somebody called me and said hey you're writing Wolverine now I might not do the same stuff but I love to see what somebody like Ben Percy is doing and a lot of what is in X Lives and X Deaths is exactly that it's just a really great Wolverine story I think the way it has to weave in with Inferno just for me it, it is not just not what I wouldn't do but it just kind of I had trouble as a reader connecting with it and the fact that really it was the treading water of a line wide reset as we moved into the Destiny of X era really tough sell I have so much respect for what the creative team did to make that happen I think maybe from an editorial and publication standpoint it was a big risk to just 
just have those titles be the ones that were the big standouts of that time period. Um, again, you know, we're talking about the the shipping and publishing delays being a part of the equation, but I think I might have loved that story more if it didn't have so much other work to do besides telling this big Wolverine story and really had to be much more of a larger X-Men story. Just a lot to put on that, but at the end of the day, you know, still an impressive feat. Another thing that we saw in the age of Hoxpox was a return to the Marvel Universe crossovers featuring X-Men. We see War of the Realms, Empire, King in Black, and Death of Doctor Strange all at least feature the X-Men in some way. Now, that's, you know, really significant. That's a really cool thing that the X-Men get to be a part of the Marvel Universe again, and not just in their, oh, that one miniseries in the crossover. War of the Realms being that is the reason why Empire, King in Black, Death of Doctor Strange, while those characters do appear in just one miniseries, except, you know, in King in Black, where Jean Grey is the fucking badass of all time, you know, it's so significant because the X-Men aren't sequestered. Yes, they had things to do on Genosha, but they also had those tie-in issues for Empire in the pages of Hickman's X-Men, featuring Vulcan, which ultimately went on to be a funny haha. <laughs> so I've just been really excited about the way this recentered the X-Men into the main Marvel Universe. And Empire is a great example because, yeah, it is technically a miniseries featuring the X-Men where they are on their other island doing stuff, but it does all spin out of Wanda gonna Wanda, and that becomes an important part of Trial of Magneto and becomes then an important part of both the Maximov-Lensher family lore, but also the greater cosmology of the X-Men. Wanda's real need to address the wrongs that plagued these characters for so many years of publication becomes the central motivator for getting us into the Empire series, which then winds up being a lot of fun, an interesting chance to let a certain group of characters play around in a way that we just might not have gotten to see otherwise. Similarly, just one issue of Death of Doctor Strange X-Men, Black Knight, allows them to interact with Black Knight and have a very interesting connection to his daughter, Jackie Chopra, which I feel like there's the ability to pay that off at any time. So even though they give the appearance of still being a little bit siloed off whenever they're in a miniseries, I think now we're seeing much more that there's always connective tissue for playing around with in the future. Again, just I love seeing writers playing in the sandbox, doing something additive and saying, you know, to the next writer, please feel free to pick up on what I have done. You know, it wasn't just a really great time for new material in the last couple of years. The last four years have seen an un fucking believable number of omnibus editions. We've seen omnibus editions from Captain Britain, which is the expanded and remastered edition. You know, I think that edition is so interesting because with the upcoming Miracle Man omnibus edition, Marvel is really putting their foot in the, no, we're cool with using Alan Moore's material too. You know, DC does it all the time, so who cares? Sort of position. And this edition of the omnibus also collected the two hardcovers that had originally been 
released by Panini Comics in the UK, which featured all of the Captain Britain Weekly, all of the Super Spider-Man, and I believe the two volumes were called Birth of a Legend and The Siege of Camelot. The Siege of Camelot also saw the inclusion of the Black Knight saga, the Otherworld saga that a lot of the Knights of X Excalibur stuff sort of references. So I can see why that one got such a deluxe re-release during this time. We also saw the return of a lot of really interesting pieces back into print alongside the Captain Brit. Now, for all of the things that went back into print, like Jim Lee and Chris Claremont's run, Volumes 1 and 2, which were some of the earliest omnibus editions Marvel had released, we also saw new printings of Age of Apocalypse and the Age of Apocalypse Companion, as well as the quickly out of print and thusly heavily sought after Wolverine and the X-Men. That thing hit some insane price points for a while. We also saw the return to print of Astonishing X-Men, which is an omnibus that they'll always keep printing. But the one that really got my attention was the rebranding of the Dark Phoenix Saga omnibus into the Phoenix Saga omnibus. Phoenix Volume 1, it says on the spine. Yeah. Now, TK, I believe you have this one. I am not the biggest omnibus person. I am trying to get a little more into them now because we just, we are, the way our house is, I I think I like them for display and because we have such a great digital library now, I'm pretty comfortable having the books here. And so uh, for a gift for my partner, I got Mutant Massacre, which had just either released or re-released. One or the other. Yeah. As a gift for me, they got me the first Phoenix Omnibus. And at the time in the solicits that I read, it just said, you know, Phoenix Omnibus. And I was very excited when I actually opened it and saw on the spine that volume one, because I'm very excited to see what volume two is. Although I say excited, but I actually mean nervous because given what's collected there and what I know is left, I feel like, am I buying a volume two that has like war song? Maybe because I'm just that kind of person, but I hoped to keep a limited amount of Greg Land art in my house at any given time. And that's always the interesting thing about some of these numbers that get placed on some of these books. It's tough to know sometimes if something is a reissue or a re-release in part because initially Marvel did not think there was any real market for these omnibus editions. I think they were just collectors and they were really priced out of availability by virtue of what they are. And that means that for a very long time, these omnibus editions were treated like just incredibly high-end display pieces, like you said. And having just done a check, yeah, X-Men Mutant Massacre originally released in 2018, re-released in 2021. So, you know, we saw a number of initial volumes come out and then no subsequent volume for a significant period of time. This is probably best seen in Wolverine, whose first volume, which is kind of a mess. That first volume that dropped in 2009 has like Marvel Comics Presents 1 through 10, 72 through 84, a handful of the significant Incredible Hulks he appeared in, some classic stories, some Uncanny from the 170s, the Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries, Wolverine 1 through 10, some Punisher, some Spider-Man. Like there's no real thought to how that omnibus goes in terms of the age of the golden omnibus. Now you see it a little bit more put together with volumes two and three, but that first volume was originally released in 2009. It would subsequently see re-release in 2020 with a volume of Wolverine's omnibus line to each follow one a year, August of 
2021 and November of 2022. So I find myself really fascinated by how many of those sort of long-awaited editions we ultimately got with things like New Mutants 1 and 2, Wolverine 1 through 3, Excalibur 1 and 2. Excalibur, to be honest, really does sort of shock me as a line of omnibus editions because that does feel perhaps a little bit more niche, a little bit more a very specific audience. And now that they've collected 1 through 67 and most of the significant classic stuff, I'm unsure what they're going to collect. It'll be really interesting since some of that material that falls at the end of this first Excalibur run from the edition that began in 1988 and runs through about 1997, 1998. Uh, That Excalibur has a lot of classic Betsy, Captain Britain stuff, especially the follow-up four-issue miniseries by Ben Robb. So I'd be curious to see if that gets collected at some point. And then at the same time, you have the one that I have been hoping and dreaming for that I just think we are nowhere near it ever actually coming out, which is, of course, Generation X, which did just release the next volume of its epic collection. So for the first time in trade print, we've got more Generation X than we've had in a very long time. But as I have said so many times, including in the last episode where I just waxed poetically about how that is my teen school team, I am so ready for at least one, if not five, Generation X Omnibuy. So I just, you know, I wait at the edge of my seat at all times for the announcement that that could happen. I will just at this point be happy if a lot of it gets released digitally, which does seem to be happening slowly but surely. And, you know, holding out hope that a lot of this stuff will be released is very in line with the sort of projection on the omnibus line. I waited forever for a Claremont Revolution omnibus. And then one day it appeared. It just felt too good to be true that a really kind of unwieldy, difficult to understand era would be collected. Of course, that Revolution omnibus was followed by an Eve of Destruction omnibus that really fills out a lot of the end of that era. And now we're even getting an Extreme X-Men omnibus. I mean, what's next? Am I going to get a Joe Casey? Are you for real? Can I can I dream so big? And it was a pretty sort of interesting thing because as Marvel was transitioning to a look at crossover-based omnibus editions with things like Mutant Massacre, Fall of the Mutants, Inferno Prologue, Inferno and the Twelve, we also still saw some pretty creator-based omnibus editions with Jonathan Hickman's X-Men and Grand Design. I understand everyone. You don't care for Grand Design. I get it. But they did give us Grand Design in the Marvel Treasury Edition format, and I am a sucker for the Marvel Treasury Edition format. And you know what? I like Grand Design. I think it's cool. I love a project. Give it a chance, people. It's cool. The art's great. Just go with it. Because it's not saying this is canon now. No. It's just a fun little take on it, and it's something that I know I'm always set to cover with one of the creators of the network. So, Mike, if you're listening, buddy, your time is coming. We have somebody else on board. We could make this dream real. And what I will say is it's like the way that I talk about the cartoon. The cartoon is it's a kid's cartoon. Like we all wax really poetic about how great it was and what we really mean is we love it because it got us into the X-Men and the thing I always say is it made the X-Men easier for me to understand so I could become a comic book reader and honestly by it took one season and with that amount of you know I think I'm like between six or eight years old. I think I'm about eight years old. With one season of understanding through the animated series as an eight-year-old, I then understood comics well enough 
enough that the rest of the seasons kind of they're they're fine they're great they're kids cartoon but i now am into the comics because i i get all these relationships because i've seen them in a form that's easier for me to digest and i think that's really what grand design does is just make this all a little bit easier to understand it's not canon but it gives you just an understanding of the big stories and relationships and you know i iconographic visuals such that if you can get through those which you really should be able to because they're a great read you can then delve into anything and be like i know who that character is i understand it and i think that is a constant worthy project throughout any comic story be it marvel be it dc any independent creator if you get prolific with the amount that you publish you are going to want to do projects that make it more possible for people to interact with your stories other than here's a gigantic digital back catalog sort it out for yourself and i think that's even part of the design of what marvel is often doing with what they put back into print they're sort of trying to control the way people interact with the material it was something i also felt they did with legacy numbering not like oh you're pulling a fast one on me but marvel legacy numbering really got creative with what it pulled to hit its values and i don't blame them you know they were trying to do something that made the idea more fun and a website that i highly recommend for anybody who is a numbers buff and hey if you've been listening for our mc2 coverage i just need to say without comicron i would not stand a chance of producing my you know incredibly lengthy sales figures you know and just to give a shout out you know we covered so much that we talked about on the x-men side of things but over in the mc2 we covered spider girl zero through 100 half spider girl annual a next one through 12 fantastic five one through five j2 1 through 12, Wild Things 0 through 5, The Buzz and the Dark Devil each 1 through 3, Last Hero Standing and Last Planet Standing 1 through 5. We took a look at Spider-Man Family number 1, Amazing Spider-Man Family number 1 through 4. We took a look at three different Ohatmu guides. We looked at Amazing Spider-Girl 0 through 30, another round of Fantastic Five and Avengers Next 1 through 5, before taking a look at Spectacular Spider-Girl 1 through 11, and then a second volume one through four and then the end so without comicron's help i never could have pulled together the insane numbers for that project and this website just proved truly invaluable but back to the idea of the legacy numbering i think that there is always a really interesting decision as to what to include and what not to include in these numbering projects cable hit its 150 pretty reasonably it took one through 107 soldier x1 through 12 and then two volumes of cable but i personally was sort of surprised that it didn't also throw in cable blood and metal like that's just sort of weird and then deadpool okay so here's how i got here i said to myself we're at 375 episodes what x-men books have hit 375 without having to do some really creative number now you know everybody might say well uncanny x-men hit 544 but it did have that weird period where it was out of regular circulation. So for me, yeah, 375, but I would probably say, moreover, their 375th consecutive issue was 469. That represented the first issue that didn't have a bunch of reprints kind of muddying the count up, but no other X-Men title has ever gone that long. And looking at some of these numbers, you know, it takes Doctor Strange five runs to hit 381. It's just 375 is a lot to do anything. 
And regardless of whether you're talking about writing a comic or doing a podcast, the amount of effort and group planning and thought and dedication that goes into visiting any project for this amount of time, just the number of man hours. You know, I'm not patting us on the back or anything. I'm just saying it's really staggering that any creative team, whether it is solely a specific group of people or it is a uh, revolving door family that keeps coming to any particular project it's very impressive and it's a lot of time dedicated to loving something and working on something and making it better yeah it that's that's how i feel i feel like this has been a really incredible resource i've loved so many of the people i've gotten a chance to meet and i've done some really incredible things through this podcast and you know we played around with legacy numbers and like renumbered the show a number of times and like i was often afraid that the number would scare people off but you know i think looking at legacy numbers kind of funny enough both makes the argument for and against on its own i think about like deadpool and for them to get to deadpool 287 isn't that traumatic it's deadpool circle chase one through four deadpool one through four those are his two minis and fair enough then they throw in his first ongoing agent x which is the deadpool counterpart to cable soldier x they throw in cable deadpool one through 50 and then three runs of deadpool and i ask myself though why does cable deadpool go to deadpool yeah, he's in more of it because Cable kind of dies. But then shouldn't at least some of Cable Deadpool count for Cable? But it doesn't. I imagine them fighting behind the scenes over who gets credit for these things. Well, I do need to say that no question here. I would not have wanted to be the intern tasked with coming up with how Venom hits 155 because the level of work they put in to making some of these numbers possible is just wild. According to the official Marvel Legacy image. It's six issues of Venom Lethal Protector, three issues of Venom Funeral Pyre, three issues of Venom the Madness, three issues of Venom the Enemy Within, the Mace, uh, four issues of Knights of Vengeance, Separation Anxiety, and Carnage Unleashed. Then it's a one-shot called the Venom Super Special that brings you up to 31. Then it's five issues of Sinner Take All, four issues of Along Came a Spider, three issues of The Hunted, four issues of The Hunger, three issues of Truth and Claw, three issues of on trial three issues of license to kill a one shot called seed of darkness brings you up to 57 then venom the finale is three issues bringing you up to 60 you then get an 18 issue venom series to 78 venom dark origin brings you up to 83 then a run of venom which ran 42 issues but also had some point ones in there 13.1 point .3, and point four, as well as 27.1 brings you up to 130 venom space knight to 143 venom one to six brings you to 149 and you get to renumber at 150. I could not have done that. 24 years worth of Venom publication and it's insane just how many of those are th one to three issues. And I swear that literally just that's the longest we've talked about anything on the show. Yeah. Beyond that there's a couple of other really interesting numbers that I would throw in there. You know I kind of joke that it's incredible that we hit 375 but yeah I mean X-Men had to renumber up to 300 and it has not resumed class numbering yet. X-Factor had to renumber a couple of times to get to 262. X-Force only hit 129 before becoming Ecstatics, which in and of itself only ran 28 issues, so didn't run that particularly long afterward. Excalibur ran 125 issues, and subsequent series have not resumed the numbering. So it gets a little interesting. You know, of course, it is of note that New Mutants hit 100, and Generation X renumbered up to 87. It's just very funny that things get 
get kind of nebulous around the 90s in terms of numbering and renumbering, and then we continue that nebulousness into the 2000s, and that's where we start to do volumes. No longer just the renumbering, but we're, you know, now we're on, I think, volume six of Uncanny, and it's interesting that Marvel is much more focused on giving us discrete volumes of hopefully somewhere between 12 and 30 issues unless it's something like Knights of X which is just going to be a five volume but it really starts to get difficult to conceive of how many issues of Uncanny there have been when you're talking about on top of the hundreds that came before all of the restarts of Uncanny that get you into I believe the 600s but also again with like six volumes. I love to point out that the guy currently helming Axe Kieran Gillen is the only guy to end Uncanny X-Men twice. Impressive feat. Speaking of impressive feat, I feel like that is definitely the tagline for my OnlyFans, but (laughs) I need to just say that there is nothing so incredible as the number of times Wolverine appears a month, save for perhaps Wolverine's Warner Brothers style creative accounting for his number of appearances. Wolverine has 189 issues, plus, you know, half, zero, blank, whatever. Whatever Wolverine did got an issue in the 90s, and then it runs about 189 of those. Then he runs 74 issues of the next volume before it renumbers for Dark Wolverine starring Dokken before he's interesting. But somewhere in there, they also drop Wolverine 900. Sure, whatever. They then renumber for 20 issues. And in that time, there's also Wolverine Origins, which is a separate series that runs for 50 issues. There's also Wolverine Weapon X, which runs for like 16 issues and is the basis for so much of what Jason Aaron would go on to do with the character. And that volume of Wolverine runs to issue 20 when it renumbers to issue 300, where it runs to issue 317 before coming to an abrupt conclusion in order for Wolverine to get two short-lived, like 12-issue runs and then die. However, before his death and before those two runs of roughly 12 issues each by Paul Cornell, one with art by Alan Davis, the other with art initially by Ryan Stegman and then a host of other people come in before Steve McNiven and Charles Sewell write Death of Wolverine, we get Wolverine 1000. So, you know, numbering gets creative. You know, and the Wolverine is just such a, is the perfect example because I'm sure there is a legitimate way to get to that number. I also imagine that despite technically being legitimate, it's a little bit silly, but I buy it because, yeah, Wolverine has been absolutely everywhere, especially since the 90s. He is comically that character that is three, four, five places at once. And, you know, you will hear about, well, we had to create this character, Lady Mastermind, the other sister, because the first sister was already in a book and they couldn't both, we couldn't just have that one in two books at the same time. So we made a sister. So now there are two Lady Masterminds. We don't worry about that with Wolverine. Even if there is like a direct timeline of this story takes place over a week and that other story takes place over the same week and all of the characters involved are in one location. Somehow Wolverine is the character that is in two locations at the same time in both books and you are never to question it and we are just going to keep barreling through. And that is very silly and very stupid but he's the guy. He's the one you do it with and you know if you are insisting that you have to create a second mastermind sister because that's not plausible yeah Wolverine will just be the one where we never worry about that same stuff and I think that's very funny and very 
very constant. And just on a personal note, we used to do an episode a year just devoted to Logan. And, you know, sometimes we would turn it into a two-parter. And then this year, Marvel gave us X-Lives and X-Deaths of Wolverine. And I don't think there was an episode that didn't have Wolverine for a good solid several months, honestly. Also, because you were devoted to doing Life of Wolverine, the Infinity comic. It was excellent. There was (laughs) nothing not to cover there. It was really, truly a tour de force of who Logan is as a character and why he means so much to so many people. And I found, I felt very lucky to cover so much Wolverine and to really get to do such a deep dive on a character that I care so much about. It's so crazy to think that I have been doing this show for now 375 episodes while I am so lucky to have had so many incredible, incredible books to talk about. I think the thing more than even Wolverine or any number of X-Men, I think the thing that's been the most amazing for me has been the people I've had an opportunity to talk with and not just the incredible creators who have given their time, but our regular cavalcade of of crazy comic fans that we have come through here several times a week and it has been such an incredible pleasure to not just talk about comics I love and not just cover Wolverine but to cover Wolverine with so many people for whom Logan means so many things. One of the things I've long said on this show is that for me characters like Logan come to mean so many things to so many people because there's no single iteration of Batman that can give you every version of Batman. There's no single iteration of Storm that can give you every iteration of Storm. And that means who Storm is means very different things to very different people. Who Batman is also. And to this point, who Wolverine is is going to mean very different things to people and who the X-Men are. We wouldn't be upset that X-Factor got cancelled if every X-Book was the same. But in this four years, we have seen such a dramatic transformation of all of the things that define the X-Men. And it's been unbelievable to get to share it with the 40 people that have been on this show and there are so many names without whom I just simply could not do this and it would just be crazy to try and list everybody but I know that I could never get through all of the administrative duties of keeping this show up and running without Kevo my incredible husband and partner who does all of the heavy lifting on the back end and creating the art and you know that first like 150 episodes I think the art is by Joey and huge shout Shout out to Cage Club owner Joey. What a great guy. And, you know, since then, Kevo's been churning out the art and he doesn't show up on a whole lot of segments because he keeps his comic reading very specific. But when he does show up, he always brings an amazing wealth of knowledge. And so, you know, I just could not do this without his art. And it's also really incredible to get to work with so many amazing voices this whole time that Kyle and Jonah have been a part of the show forever. And there are way too many people to name, but since Nathan has been doing so much work helping with the Twitter and produce the show for so long, there's just no way I could do it without him. And TK, it is unbelievable that we have covered like 300 issues in our MC2 project, uh, plus you, me, and Nathan on Avengers, you and I on Electra. It has been an unbelievable wealth of books beyond just the X Avail. And it has been such a fascinating ride through not just current coverage, as as I said at the start of all this, but getting to delve back into the catalog, picking something like MC2 and how that has changed my perspective on the current
current books that I'm reading. I just want to shout out my partner, Jake, who I think is the newest contributor to the show, whom I would not have the kind of other half of the formulated perspective that I get every week because they and I talk out not just current comics, but all this past stuff too for hours on end in our spare time. And they are a wealth of knowledge, not just about comics, but about things like religion and media that I just could never get to the thoughts and opinions that I have without them. But man, it has been such an incredible joy to not just have the opportunity to every week look at what is coming out and voice my opinions and pull together various concepts and ideas that I think are running through everything, but to get something like MC2 that I have been aware of my entire life, but never would have even thought to delve into in the way that we have and to get to do so with a partner that it meant something really big to and to get to play on those two perspectives of this interests me, but I have no real connection to it versus this interests me and I had a real connection to it and how that plays into our connection to old books, new books. It's just been so fascinating and we are so lucky to have all of this content and all of these stories to delve into from a number of different perspectives, not just our own, but the other contributors to this podcast and to constantly get to revisit the important concepts and characters that we love so much. And speaking of loving so much, I want to give a big thanks to all of our contributors like Josh, Arturo, Steve, Raven, Juancho, Tori, Drew, B-Way, Evelyn, Steven, Dante, and everyone who has contributed in the last few years to this incredible program I am so proud to be part of. We love making this show for you three times a week. MC2 Mondays, Modern Marvels, and XI4P Wednesdays and Fridays. As always, you can get everything you need about this show from accessforpodcast.com and at accessforpodcast on Twitter. TK, I'm so excited that the next episode is more of this MC2 coverage that we keep talking about <laughs> because some of the stuff we're covering in the aftermath of the MC2 is so exciting. It's really different perspectives and I can't wait to bring it with you. This is really where we get into how something with such a strange storied past can start to affect the future and really make us as readers and as creative thinkers think about how the contributions of past can contribute to what happens in the future and our own conceptions of not just a specific character that was covered, but a whole universe that is related to a character. It's really been such a joy. And Nico, I can't thank you enough for all the hard work that you do producing, editing, running the show, being our fearless leader. It really is just such a joy to work with you and to get to do this every week. You know, it's my pleasure. And I can't imagine anything finer than getting an opportunity to help put the microphone in the hands of people who I really think have the voice for it and that this team chooses to give me that time each week. Really, it's my pleasure. And if people would like the pleasure of your company, TK, where can they find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And of course, as Nico mentioned, on Mondays for MC2 and on Wednesdays and Fridays doing coverage of the current books, getting real excited for everything that's coming up in the future. You guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like X's for Podcast, HTML, Husbands Talking More or Less, and the Cage Club Archives. And if you check out our partner YouTube, Hubs Plus Network, that's Hubs Plus Network on YouTube, you can check out the Billy Club, my and Tori Sheen's exploration of all things Daredevil, starting with his first ever appearance back in Daredevil number one in 1964. We're kind of at 1967. Digging into the history of comics is what made this show, and I would be remiss if I didn't say you should check into something like the Billy Club, where you can learn about the comics that made these comics possible 
possible. And speaking of comics, if you guys like what you hear here, you might even like my creator-owned work. So don't forget to check out my original comic, Kid Riot, over at KidRiotComics.com, as well as my contribution to the Young Men in Love anthology recently released, featuring incredible artists and writers like Cena Grace, Anthony Oliveira, Terry Bloss, Joe Glass, and more. I just thank you guys so much for 375 episodes in four years. I don't know. It's it's a lot to process, and I'm just so grateful that I get to process it with all of you on air. And until next time, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember, 400's just around the fucking corner. Oh my god, does that mean I have to do a silent issue? <laughs> oh my god, how am I going to do a silent episode? This is fine. We'll see ya. See you for issue 750.